just as a heads up, guys, I wanted to give a trigger warning for the movies we're about to talk about. They both feature pretty graphic um, sex scenes, sexual assaults, and things of that nature. So if that is not something that is of interest to you, if it's something that is triggering to you, please feel free to dip out now. I promise we'll do something that isn't a scary or difficult movie soon. Thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. I am your host, Kayla St. Ange. Joining me as always is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. No. Oh, I was going to say hi. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. What if they don't know how I sound? And this month, we are welcoming our very first guest for our year-long Criterion series. And that guest is our producer, Landon DeFever. Hello. How are you, how are you two doing this evening? <laughs> Doing great. We're we're off to a really great start. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I heard all about the pre-podcast Rose slurping, like prior to me popping on the call. So that was fun to hear about. Oh no, sorry. That was yesterday. It was uh, yesterday, excuse me. Okay. I don't drink during the Criterion episodes because I have to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are discussing two films that Landon brought to us. The first is a 2001 French film directed by Catherine Brela called Fat Girl. And the second is also a French film directed by Michael Haneke uh, that was released in the year 2000 called The Piano Teacher. Before we hop into our first movie, Landon, uh, you're our first guest on this series and you chose these movies. And previously, the movie that you chose for us was of similar discomfort. So I'm just curious uh, what your thought process was behind putting together this double feature for us to discuss well more than anything i guess films like fat girl the piano teacher and happiness which i recommended as my patreon choice um i don't know i think films like this kind of tackle uncomfortable truths and i like talking about films like this that are really uncomfortable one because i think reactions to stuff like this is um kind of enjoyable to see like people's like to see like such extremes on films is really i don't know entertaining from a perspective of ah like cringy and uncomfortable and it fills you with feelings that you wouldn't normally get in something um i don't know something normal that you would recommend, that that anyone would recommend really or something that would just be in a normal theater so that initial like uh, sort of tightening reaction i think is really interesting but also um i i don't know i think there's a lot of underlying truths that are and themes that get talked about in all three of these movies um fat girl and piano teacher we're going to be talking about today that uh that i think are worth addressing and worth bringing up and talking about in a thoughtful dialogue with people whose opinions I trust so I would definitely agree these are definitely both movies that are in the category of difficult to watch but ultimately truthful I think so yeah I don't know I'm definitely excited to dive into it so if you guys are ready I'm gonna cue us up with our first uh first summary let's do it so just as a heads up uh as you may recall from our last episode we will be 
fully spoiling all of these movies with a thorough summary before we discuss them. So if you are interested in seeing the movie first, now is your chance to duck out. I will not warn you again. The first movie that we're going to discuss is called Fat Girl or in French, Amasur. On venait à un split. J'adore ça. Pour la première fois, je voudrais que ce soit un garçon que j'aime pas. Où est ta soeur Je suis pas payée pour lui servir d'ange gardien. Thank you for looking that up. That was the one pronunciation I could not find. So thank you. Um, I've taken 10 minutes of French on Duolingo, so I'm doing pretty yeah. well. <laughs> All right. So as I said before, this movie was released in 2001. It is directed by Catherine Brela. It stars Anaïs Rebu, Roxanne Mesquita, and Libero Di Rienzo. And the summary of the film is that two sisters, Elena and Anaïs, are vacationing with their family. Elena is 15, skinny and beautiful, while Anaïs is 13, heavier and shamed by her family for her eating habits. The two walk to town each day and discuss relationships and virginity. Elena is promiscuous but determined to save herself for someone who loves her. Anaïs has a more pragmatic view of virginity and states that it's better to lose it to a nobody so that it's over and done with. One day at a cafe, the sisters are invited to sit by a young Italian law student named Fernando. He is smitten with Elena and later sneaks into the girl's room for a late-night liaison, liaison, which Anais is awake to witness. After a discussion of other girls he has slept with, Elena consents to sex but then backs out. Fernando pressures her through various means, including threatening to sleep with another girl. Finally, he convinces her that having anal sex will not count as losing her virginity and that it is, in fact, an act of love to give this to him. Elena consents, though it is a painful experience. The next morning, Fernando asks Elena for oral sex, but Anais decides that she has had enough and speaks up, demanding that they let her sleep in peace. The girls go shopping with their mother and pick out new dresses. Then Fernando takes them to the beach. While Anais sings to herself in the waves, the pair go off together. When they arrive back home, the sisters reminisce about their childhood, and Elena reveals that Fernando has given her his grandmother's ring and that she plans to sleep with him. When she follows through, Anais lies awake and cries on the other side of the room. The next day, Fernando's mother arrives, demanding the ring back and revealing the affair between the two. The girl's mother angrily packs their things and begins the drive home. After many cigarettes and loud punk music are not enough to keep her awake, she pulls off at a rest stop to get some sleep. The girls again discuss relationships and virginity, ultimately deciding that things will be fine. Sometime after they've fallen asleep, a crazed man shatters the windshield of the car with an axe, murdering Elena. He strangles their mother and drags Anais into the woods to rape her. The next morning, the police find her and tell her father that she claims she wasn't raped, to which she responds, don't believe me if you don't want to. So that's a whole lot of film. So (laughs) what did you think? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Landon, I would really like to first get your initial perspective on this film because I have roughly 8 billion paragraphs of notes. Uh, This was a movie that really throughout was forcing me to think and analyze a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions regarding the content of this movie. So... And a lot of that related to like how I feel having grown up as a young woman. So I am really curious first to hear your, your interpretation of these events. Um, sure. Uh, but no, I, the, so the reason I, the way I found out about this movie initially was I was just digging. It was like my first week of having the criterion channel 
And I was just digging through their library alphabetically. And I was just making notes of films that I wanted to watch or check out at, at some point in time. And I saw Fat Girl popped up and I didn't know a thing about it. I just saw that it was um, relatively new, like in the last 20 years, came out in 2001. Um, the title, of course, like when you hear, the, when you see a title named Fat Girl, you're like, what is this? What's this movie about? I just, I don't know. I was just kind of initially curious. So I saw that it was less than 90 minutes and I literally just hit play I, um, one morning and I was like, sure, let's give this a shot. I kind of just want to watch a movie blind and not know a thing about it holy shit like it just blindsided me especially the two big tightening moments of this film are um the initial scene where fernando comes in to see elena and basically coerces her into like have, like like you said having anal sex with her and it just like it has it gave me that like first tightening like holy shit this is wild and crazy and like how wildly uncomfortable and and then the ending as well, which completely gobsmacked me and I was not expecting at all. But uh, I guess what, um, the more I've come back to it, that was my first viewing of this movie. And then I bought the Criterion, I own it on Blu-ray. I've watched it, I watched it with my friend Eric and he felt very similar like of that like tightening sort of experience that happiness, we also watched happiness together and we both loved that. And we also kind of walked into um, this feeling the same way, but I, I guess like on my second time viewing this and then I watched this two more times again in preparation for the podcast, but I guess I, more than anything, I really enjoyed um, a lot of the through lines of this film and how much positive, not positive, I don't know, like well handled reincorporation of a lot of the overarching themes come together in a way, especially near the end. Um, there's a lot in this film about, like, I guess the main threads that I pulled away from this film are the sisters' rivalry, in a way, between um, Anise and uh, Elena from the get-go, like, when they're, like, just standing around talking each other, talking to each other, and then they have that scene where they're basically walking to that cafe where they're talking about um, how they want to lose their virginity, cause, virginities because they're both virgins, and the Elena really romanticizes the idea of having her virginity and wanting to give it to somebody special and have it be this big magical sort of experience where Anise kind of just wants to get it over with because um, I think, and more than anything, because she's like a little more aromantic than Elena. And the beginning scene kind of tackles this in a way where um, I guess like the way that um, because Elena was just kind of born this beautiful girl and and Anise struggled like was just not born that way where she uh, um is just naturally overweight struggles with eating habits and the way that they were kind of conditioned into be having the sibling rivalry of sorts um kind of influences the way that they feel about romance and and this idea and over the course of the events, over the course of this weekend in France that they're spending on vacation, they both kind of realize like how the way that they've been conditioned ties into the way that they're, um, th that, I don't know, by the, by the film's end, like those, the reincorporation of how they feel about their own love and sexuality kind of ties itself together, I, I would say. Yeah. Tyler, as a noted, um, maybe not lover, but connoisseur of the love to suffer genre, I feel bad because I accidentally spoiled parts of this movie for Tyler because when I watched it, I thought he had already watched it and I was texting him throughout and that was not the case. So <laughs> <Okay>. sorry. 
uh, for sending you a text that read, girl, you've had anal. What is there to be afraid of? (laughs) (laughs) Which is the most academic text I will definitely ever send. But yeah. Holy shit. I'm glad I, I'm glad this film could give you that experience. (laughs) Um, Tyler, what, what was your initial read on this film? I guess. I mean, hmm. Like, not that I, like, nailed it the first time or whatever, but I think it was kind of in line with what the movie was going for. And I think that's in part, and this is a contrast I'll draw with the next, with the, um, with our other movie, but the fact that the movie kind of states its purpose through the dialogue, especially the dialogue between the sisters. Um, and it's just seemed like um, a very honest is like such like what does that word even mean at this point but uh it it seemed like it seemed like a honest true valid whatever you want to use depiction of how young heterosexual romance often goes and how and the different ways that we interact and that that especially uh boys like well men preying on girls uh and how the manipulation comes about both through like intentional and maybe unintentional ways. Um, it, I, I watched the, some of these supplements shortly after that, which like informed my, uh, I kind of like immediately informed my opinion further, but um, I guess I don't <laughs> just, uh, man, we, I guess my, I, to put it short, like I, my initial takeaway is um Wow, sex and love and sex are a very fraught thing. And we often use one to like the, or just the idea of one to get the other. And that is a very, uh, just what a manipulative thing to do to another human being, even like, and this is like an extreme example where it is like, you know, uh, like a, a man and an underage girl that further emphasizes how manipulative that uh, using love is as a tool but it just, just that, 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 like that, it, it, it like it, um, it's yeah. Fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think so. Uh, I also watched a lot of the supplemental, uh, things for this movie and I'll, I'll touch on this in a second when I talk about the, the main through line that I took away from this movie, but Berla says that, and this is a paraphrase because it, she was going very fast and I was trying to write it down in my notebook and I was trying to read the subtitles, but. I wrote uh, the same quotes down, I think. If it's that Berlin Film Festival interview, I wrote that whole quote it, down so too. It, yep, so it is a, a dichotomy of desire versus love. And because Elena cannot name her desire for what it is, just plainly a sexual desire, she feels the need to cloak it with the word love, even though she knows that that's a lie. And that is a lie that's born out of the shame of feeling desire when you don't know what to do with it, I guess. And so as much as the coercion aspect of the movie is the fucked up part of it, it's also a little bit about the lie that she's telling herself that this is going to be some special magical event, that it's going to be this amazing thing that she shares with somebody she loves. And I think that when I think on this movie and when I watch it and when I was taking notes, the two things that I kept coming back to as kind of my discussion thesis, I guess, were the concept of losing your virginity as a young teenage girl. And then the, I guess, toxicity of sex and porn culture surrounding young female sexuality. So society is constantly bombarding girls with 
pornographic images, which are not necessarily always in and of themselves wrong, but it often creates a false image of what sex is actually going to be like for you. And on top of creating a false image of what sex is like, it often creates a template for boys and for men to follow that is not a template that should be followed. It is very violent, very uh, it's it's not a collaborative act of love in a lot of pornography. It is something that is, you know, brutal and it is a man taking what he wants from a girl. Like, And I don't, there, there's so much I could go into about like the issues that I have with porn and porn culture. But when I look at this movie and these two girls, I see a kind of sexual disassociation where Elena is so focused on the romantic aspect that she wants to believe that she's going to have that she is focused on making sure that she looks so beautiful and so perfect. She's seeing herself as an object to be desired and not understanding that her own pleasure is something that should be prioritized in this experience. Anais has a slightly more pragmatic view of this where she's like, I just want to get it over with because I know it's going to suck and yada yada. But she also is kind of coming up against this issue of knowing that she's not conventionally attractive, knowing that believing that her role is to be an object to be desired, but knowing that she is not a conventionally desirable person. So this lends to a sense of maturity in which she can see through Fernando. She knows that he's full of shit and that he's going to, you know, dump her sister as soon as he gets what he wants. But because of the sibling rivalry that's been bred between the two of them, I don't think she feels like she can tell her that. I think that when they're reminiscing on their sister or on their childhood together, she's kind of trying to get there but as soon as she sees this giant ring that he's gifted her i think she realizes that like the train is in motion and it's going to go off the rails and there's really nothing she can do to stop it and she just has to kind of live with this knowledge that she is smarter and more complete emotionally than her sister but that she likely will never get to have the straight up you know just sexual activity that her sister can you know get at the drop of a hat Another thing I really like about this movie as a through line is um, kind of similar to the parallel, like kind of has a parallel to happiness in a way of this grass is always greener on the other side sort of thing, where Anise's perception of what her older sister has as far as being beautiful and uh, like attractive and could get anyone they want basically, where um, it's so Anise is always looking toward Elena and like, they, I don't know, they kind of want the same thing, but they have different focuses of how to get that. And um, it's something that like with happiness, I really enjoyed too, because um, with happiness, five different through lines of people comparing their lives um, to others and sort of gaining a, and kind of looking inward and seeing why am I not happy like they are, but they don't see the whole picture of why they're happy. And um, when Elena and Anise start to like, like when, when Anise is in the room, when uh, Elena is having that first and second, well, let's more the second one, uh, the second meetup where they actually do have sex and lose their virginity and she's just crying her eyes out. Cause even though this is clearly like a painful experience that Elena's going through because she didn't, re she didn't realize what this was going to be like. And it's not how she expected. And is crying her eyes out. Cause she just real, I think she's realizing that she's just not going, she is probably never going to get it she doesn't think that she'll ever have love that way because, or at least her first time will be that way because she, um, because of the way that she sees herself. 
It's really interesting that that's how you interpreted that scene because I had a totally different view of that. Um, when I watched that scene, I definitely was thinking that she was crying more because she kind of has this outsider status that allows her to see the world more clearly, but it's separating her from who she loves the most. And also that throughout, like she loves her sister, even though they have a rivalry, she wants what's best for her. And I think that she sees this farce for what it is. And it's a betrayal of her ideals. It's a betrayal of what the experience, it's a betrayal of the experience that she wants to have. And I think that maybe deep down Elena does know that, but maybe she also has kind of fallen prey to this. Okay, well, it's fine enough. He loves me. Let's just get it out of yeah, the way. I'm more on that. And I guess hmm. uh, okay. my initial interpretation was maybe a little crueler, but uh, like was more of pity. Well, man, pity might not be quite the right word, but that, that was enhanced again by uh, Berlot's commentary, some of which was not totally what I expected, but there seems to be... Like and I guess I try not. I don't want Brellot's commentary to inform it too much, and perhaps it's a difference in translation. But she seems to have a a lower opinion of the older sister. Um, there are specific ways that they're different, but she does. She does seem to have a lower opinion. I guess that's kind of maybe I interpreted that because it did seem more pitying. But there's also the way that Brellot describes the movie. Um, not that she's excusing Fernando's behavior, but she does also get into how she talk. I, she talks about how we use love to disguise um, lust, basically, as and almost she seems to be treating this more not as a a man predator um, preying on a girl, but on just like how like just how society is structured and been formed and developed just the um it incentivizes this behavior both on the male and the female side where on the female side she like for elena she knows better but she's talking herself into it and on the guy's side i wouldn't say he knows better but it seemed like she was saying that like it is not so much him as it is like just that that is how like the sexual relationships are like formed in our society. Yes, and I think that no, having a little bit of context about the way that the feminist movement has unfolded in France is helpful here because Brela is definitely a, a controversial figure in her own right. Um, some of the stuff that she talks about in these interviews is very much being like, I am the auteur behind this film. I am the film. These are just the players and they are the little pieces that I move and they are basically workers and I am the artiste. And that's not an uncommon opinion for a French director to have. I think auteur theory kind of begins and ends with French filmmaking in the first place. But when specifically thinking about like women in France and the way that they have dealt with the sexual revolution and with feminism as a whole, it's a lot more complicated and a lot more murky than than the kind of conversations that we have here. And there are a lot of women in France who do not prescribe like do not subscribe to the idea that feminism is a movement for them and i think that a lot of that has to do with the history of france being so rooted in these weird turns of like going to be very uh liberal and we're going to start a revolution to the rise of pseudo fascism and it happens over and over again throughout their history and they value this image of france as a romantic country and an artistic country. And there is a lot of 
grimy evil stuff below the surface there and it's discussed a lot in Alex West's really great book about the horror films of the new French extremity. And when I was doing research on this movie, I was surprised to see that a lot of people consider Brela and this film in particular to be a part of the new French extremity. And that was kind of the first inkling that I had had that this movement wasn't necessarily just for horror movies, that it's kind of a one critic called it the film of the body like a movie basically about the horror of being alive in your own human body and those kind of things and so it kind of it put into sharp relief i think the the message that bray law was trying to send with this movie which is very much that this is a societal thing and the way that france views relationships between older men and younger women is very different than how we view it here and this is maybe the one time where i I can clearly see that this is a movie about an older man preying on a teenage girl, but I also am able to kind of set that aside for a moment because I understand the like societal message that she's trying to make with it. Like it, it, it makes more sense as a higher concept than just like, this is a shitty dude. The fact that she's technically underage almost seems like more of the purpose of that specific age difference and the illegality of it feels like it's more of like a plot structural tool for why they have to be so secretive and why they have to be like so like why they can't like tell anyone about it and less so to underline the fact of how creepy he is it does obviously underline how much he sucks but that almost like it it it, that doesn't seem to be the main point of it here it it almost felt like just more of like a structural necessity in a way Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that it then lends to an interesting thing with the ending where as they're leaving and and their mother is is yelling at Elena, she's saying, you know, like your father could have him arrested. We're going to have you examined. And if we find out that any of this happened, like we're going to do X, X, and X. And it really lends to this idea that like a, a woman's body or a girl's body really is not her own until she is free of like her home growing up I guess like there's a lot of entitlement to your child's body and to take away their autonomy because at the end of the day whether it's right or wrong it is still her body and her choice of what to do with it and to then you know try to further traumatize her through the situation by being like by the way we're mad at you that you've done this we will have you examined by a strange doctor and then we will you know, press charges if we feel that it's necessary. And if I may be personal for a moment, this was something that really struck a chord with me because I grew up in a very religious household and I had a pretty similar experience when my parents found out that I was sexually active as a teenager. And that was so scary and so traumatizing to feel like a choice that I had made that I felt good about. And like, that's obviously different from the movie could then be like weaponized against me, against somebody that I loved. And I think that even though Elena knows obviously that like, she's not going to marry Fernando. I don't think that she wants him to be put in jail for this. I think she just wants to, you know, move on with her life and be like, okay, now I can have these experiences elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I also like how in the last 15 minutes, a lot of the film is largely silent. How when they're driving, there's just these long stretches of them driving home. And I I like how it kind of said, yeah, how, yeah, exactly that. So stressful. Um, It's so (laughs) stressful because it's 
like it because people i think everyone not about something this extreme i think everyone has been in an argument with their parent like that where they're just kind of not talking at all no progress is being made everyone is just kind of stewing internally and that's almost so much worse than like having a giant screaming match with your parent because it just feels like oh god what's going to happen what's going to happen why are they not saying anything and i kind of like that because there's a lot of patience in that kind of filmmaking where they're just letting all of this get drawn out like and just letting that uncomfortable nature just kind of sit and that was a touch i really liked a lot um that stuck out with me and then all of it kind of summating into the end which is just this large crash of a climax that is basically the last what two minutes of the film and then it just stops basically <laughs> so i from a um i don't know when you're looking at a movie from like looking at a movie as if it were a piece of music, it's just kind of weird to think about like how quiet and quiet and quiet and then boom, and then it's done, mm -hmm. I guess. That was like from looking at a film from that perspective, I thought it was really unique because I, I, you don't see a movie like do something like that and construct it that way, I guess. Mm -hmm. I would say patient is a really good way to describe this movie. There are a lot of very long scenes. The initial coercion scene is a full one take which I didn't really yeah. realize until I was looking at, uh, until I was listening to the interview. So I went back and watched it again. And that really is such an effective way of just kind of forcing you to be grounded in the moment of it. And on top of being very patient, it's a really quiet film. Tyler and I were discussing it. And I think that there were only three instances of music in the entire film and it's, it's quiet throughout. And yeah. it reminded me because she's, uh, Elena says that she doesn't want him to turn the music on when they're having sex because it will make her feel like he cares more about the music. And that just felt like a really cheeky authorial statement to me. <laughs> It's um it's funny you bring up the music because I actually have a fun story about that main song that plays over the beginning of the film not not the um not the limericks that um Brilla wrote for um uh for Anise to kind of sing to herself at different points when she's in the car at the beginning when she's swimming and then when she's at the beach those like little like songs that she sings that Catherine Brilla wrote there's also that um, Italian pop song. Um, it's called Vena Carnival. It's by Taverna Nova. I looked it up. It's like kind of the main song that plays when, in the beginning when they're walking to the cafe and over mm -hmm. the credits. And I was trying to find the lyrics of this song because that song's really stood out to me because I was like, one, this is very catchy and it's a nice, it's, it's a nice melody and it, it plays well. But I was trying to find the lyrics all over the place online and I wasn't having any luck. So I asked, I did like a last ditch resort on Twitter. Do I have any friends that speak Italian? Because I really want to know what the hell they're saying in the song. And my friend, uh, Danny Petrelli actually messaged me and said, I speak Italian. Can I help you in any way? <laughs> and he basically, uh, I gave him the song and he was able to piece, um, kind of take out a little bit um, uh, what this song is. Uh, he said that it was in a uh, a very like, distinct dialect so he couldn't make out all of it but he does speak pretty good italian if i'm not mistaken but what he said was um the and i quote the verses seem like he's talking about watching a woman at a venice carnival that happens every year generally it's called um carnival de venezia but he shortens it to vene like how we would say cali instead of california there are a lot of words I can't figure out what the fuck he, this is him saying this, what the fuck he's even getting at, but he talks about going up some stairs and seeing someone and thinking that could be me, to which I'm assuming it's two people together and he wants to be one of them. And that I think kind of tied in what I was talking about when, what my explanation of that second time where they actually have like mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I think that kind of tied into my understanding of the second time where they get together and they actually do lose their virginity. It because it when you tie into the idea of like going like kind of that longing like grass is always greener like why can't that be me sort of thing like I wish I was like it's someone I see every year and I just I, it's some it's something unattainable that I can't have I guess and I guess I kind of tied that the decision of that to of that song being in the movie tying to Anise and Elena's relationship I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely think that this is a movie that has is wide open for lots of interpretations. And I think that it's also, it's, it's a very French director thing. And Hanukkah says this too, where he says that he doesn't want to explain things because it makes movies dull. And so I think that as much as we like to talk about authorial intent on this podcast, this is very much a, a culture of take what you get out of it I guess and um I don't know overall I think that I think we have to discuss the ending in that. depth because yeah. I sounded way too excited oh, when man. I said that I, first of all I what was, okay <laughs> what was your initial reaction of that hitting because I honestly I think the first time I watched this I like was kind of zoning out a little bit because it was my first time and I knew I liked the movie but like I had gotten so used to the quiet moments that when the crash of that window hit I just like freaked out and went into defense mode I was just like so taken off guard by it yeah I will say um you can clearly see again the thesis I was trying to develop was very much about like an object to be acted upon all this stuff. Um, I thought it was a fantasy or a dream because it seemed to me that Anais would kind of be the person who would perhaps have like a twisted rape losing virginity fantasy, the, the, the ideal traumatic way of just getting it out of the way. Um, I was halfway through writing a note that hold on. Let me Mine was just that. ax murderers be swinging. Um, yeah, I had written, I had written do. down the quote just before this, where Anais says that it's sick being a virgin, and I, I felt that because it really is, it, it, it lends to all of this terrible like buildup in your head when really, like at the end of the day, it is really not that fucking special. I don't know. But um, I, if I, if I could pop into, um, I'm yeah. actually, um, I don't know if this is TMI. I'm actually still a virgin, and I definitely feel that way a lot yeah. of the time. Too. I mean, I, I think it is. It, it lends to a culture that just it builds up an unbeatable fantasy and also just lends itself to such disappointment at the end of the day. But um, I was halfway through writing a note that said porn culture equals rape fantasy question mark. Is this the thread? And then I quickly realized that um, it was real and it was happening and it was the end of the movie. And I was really surprised. I, mean, I had to kind of you're sit with still it for not a totally wrong. The movie just basically ends with a rape fantasy. Um, and and that well, and that's, that's kind true. of where like, like the I interpretation yeah. <laughs> is kind of important. Um, well, important, uh, but well, that's where the interpretation is up for debate, and that's why because like the knee jerk reaction could e- could easily be, wow, what sick and twisted irony that she got what she wanted in the worst possible way, but seems like mm-hmm. the movie is going more for this is kind of exactly what she wanted and she is claiming like authority attention or whatever over it to the point where we even see her like obviously this is not actually like 
this is not like, like I don't know. It's like it's it's totally fucked up. But like she like we spend thirty seconds with her like walking backwards, luring him away from the scene and into the forest. Um, which is like obviously again really like sick and messed up. But like I that seemed to be the intention. Um, and even like reading more and getting brought, like she did not like, and I, I wouldn't expect it. She did not explicitly say what that was, but she didn't get, did in one of the supplementals get into like the alternate ending and why they did where she, where, um, Anais is observed by a gynecologist and then basically says the same thing. And they did not go with that alternate ending because that was someone asking her and they want, and, and Berla wanted to end it with her, stating it with her taking like with her laying claim to um Mm -hmm. like the authoring of what this of what happened i would say i i was really conflicted on how to feel about this because it is a really unfortunate trope in a lot of movies where a, a victim of sexual assault uh begins to enjoy it halfway through and at first I was very turned off by the idea because I really did not feel like that was you know what the movie was getting at like once I realized that this was a a real thing and not a fantasy of hers and so I I did what I like to do a lot with movies which is I went to read some letterbox reviews because I, I really like getting just other yeah. people's perspective and I feel that Letterboxd has a really good like there there are a lot of good like layman opinions on there and one of the reviews that I read mentioned that halfway through this this assault you can clearly see Anais go from being frantic to kind of being calm and there are a couple of ways to interpret this it could be a freeze reaction it could be any of these things but the user chose to interpret this as Anais taking control of the situation and saying this is not hurting me I am getting this out of the way and it will be done and I will never have to think about it again it's just a stranger and now I can go on with the rest of my life so claiming that narrative of like i am no longer a virgin and now i can just be done with this and i think that there is there's a problematic way to view it and there's a way of like when you've been through a sexual assault you are the person who gets to decide how you feel about it in the end and if she feels in this moment that the best way to deal with that is to say that it was the consummation of her desire then that is what it is and in real life obviously i would want this person to go to lots of therapy and work on this and (laughs) work it out (laughs) but i mean as as a movie it it makes sense and i think that that is the reading that i kind of lean into and when i again referring to brayla's supplemental interviews um to paraphrase, uh, everybody else is kind of denying Anais her bodily autonomy in a lot of ways. Like she has to stay with her sister to do things. They criticize her eating habits. She turns to food and she gains weight as a way of like existing and taking up space in the world. And that image usually protects her from like the societal norms of like men being creepy to her. And it's really sad that in the end that isn't enough to protect her. But I think that she is a strong enough person and a strong enough character to take that trauma and say like i will come out of this still myself still the version of myself that i have created and this axe murderer cannot take it from me mm-hmm. one, so, one other oh sorry go ahead Tyler. yeah it's a lot to process in yeah <laughs> no it really is it, it's and i think that of the two movies this is the one that is going to stick with me a little bit more even though it was mm-hmm. the one that was same to watch yeah um with, you know with um 
I don't know. I think both of these movies kind of work in um, in a lot of silence and a lot of in a lot of quiet moments, um, punctuated by these like big moments of the of that feeling that I kind of mentioned that tightening feeling. Um, but this one, uh, I think, says um, I don't know. I think um, Piano Teacher is more subtle, where Fat Girl I think has the mo- like the things that the the big moments are saying more and saying in Fat Girl than I think Piano Teacher. It's very anything. explicit. Yeah. Um, there's um, one thing to break the tension a little bit. Um, one thing I wanted to, I was looking through IMDb trivia on this. Um, during that second uh, scene where Elena, like where Fernando comes over and Elena loses her virginity and um, Anissa's crying, um, apparently in order to get Anise to cry, because uh, the actress's name is a, is a, is a, a nice Anise, one of the two. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basically, in order to get her to cry, um, Anissa's mom was on set and told her that her dog died. Oh my and, god! And basically, like tells her action, and then she's just bawling her eyes out. It doesn't break the cut, tension at all. Like, that oh, makes it worse. Oh yeah, you're not dead after all. That was the most relieving feeling going through IMDb and reading that, and I was like, Jesus Christ! French I mean, directors, yeah. man, some of the, I mean, some of the comments I have remaining are like. I mean, stuff we've kind of discussed and stuff that I kind of want to get into more after we get into the, the piano teacher more, mm-hmm. um, kind of just contrasting the two, like out to her theory and stuff. Um, but treatment of actors is really interesting too. And that's where, like, I guess that kind of like furthered my opinion of the movie in that Berlot seemed more dismissive of, I don't have the actress's name, um, who played the older sister. Um um, uh, seemed Roxanne a little, like a little more dismissive and ha- seemed to have like she eventually came around to saying that like she finally got it you know it finally clicked into place but that took a while but then when she's discussing Anais she's like oh just the way she moves is so interesting and it's clear to me that Brayla is definitely struggling with uh some measure of internalized misogyny because Elena is giving a great performance and the scenes that she is required to do are very difficult and it takes a lot of honesty and um i don't know fragility to shoot scenes like that and i think that it took until maybe the 20th shot for her to like kind of conceptualize this as a, a real human being who also has complex feelings despite being a conventionally attractive yeah, she definitely seemed woman. to identify more with a younger sister in many ways and yeah just it was just mm-hmm. I am not going to like, I'm like, I don't feel comfortable enough. Like saying like with me, who I am saying like that there's some internalized misogyny going on here, but just, and it makes it more difficult, like not necessarily worse, but just like more difficult to kind of grapple with this movie too. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Brayla is a really controversial figure. As I said before, um, she is somebody who maybe, maybe doesn't consider herself a feminist because she's not really sure if it's for her. She is staunchly opposed to Me Too. She called the downfall oh, wow. of Harvey Weinstein a, a loss for French filmmakers. She oh, is directly antagonistic to Asia Argento about her experience with Harvey Weinstein. And this is what I'm talking about, though, when I say that, like, there's this really strange political divide in France, and there always has been, where, you know, you have ostensibly an upper white class, white, or an upper class white woman making films about, like, basically how hard it is to be a young white girl. And there is merit in that. There absolutely is. But 
there's also a sense of privilege of like, this is clearly like a waspy, wealthy person who is, you know, who considers herself like a, a ruler with an iron fist over her set. She considers herself the only artist on set. And that kind of, I don't know, hardness, I guess, is something that we accept in a lot of male directors. And uh, she is a wonderful filmmaker. I'm not saying that she isn't, but it it's very hard to swallow for me personally. I, I really dislike when women are not supportive of each other. And I certainly can't align myself with anybody who thinks that the downfall of Harvey Weinstein is a loss for film in oh, any that's way. That's the way I didn't know that. No, <laughs> it's okay. I, this is something that I turned up in my research. And I, I think that though that kind of context to understand like, you know, where she stands politically on these things does kind of help inform how I feel about this film and the message that she's trying to send. I do think that she very much identifies with Anais. And I think that she is trying to make a film for the Anaises of the world. But I think that she's just a little, con maybe not confused, but I think that in her own internalized anger or you know misunderstanding of a feminist movement that it gets it it muddies the waters so to oh, speak, sure. i suppose um something um one more thing i wanted to say um i imagine we'll transition no, we got another hour, an hour about one. this movie i could Nine I was gonna say hours. we could we could talk a lot. Like there's a lot you could say about this movie. That's why I like it so much. But yeah, um, something about um, I the fact that this movie has so much like explicit like sexual content involving like or like the subject being children. Mm -hmm. uh, this movie I think has been was banned. I read was banned in Canada for a short time. I don't know if it still is, but um, apparently another IMDb thing I read: a man was arrested by Canada Customs and Revenue Agency in July of 2003 for importing a copy into Canada on the grounds that the movie can, um, constituted obscene material. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and then something else that I read: um, in South Korea, this is the first movie to be passed containing sex scenes with nudity. In general. Um, previously, due to strict censorship, all sex scenes that included nudity had to be edited or deleted, but this was not the case with this mm. one. So interesting. That I found that interesting, I guess. I don't know. Good for Brayla, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tyler, before we head over, do you have any final thoughts you want to express? You gotta love a visual joke for an audio podcast, am I right? <laughs> it's a visual joke for an audio medium, as our blank check boys like to say. <laughs> Don't worry, yeah. I can still shout out blank check at a serious criterion episode too. <laughs> Shameless. No, just um uh, what a <laughs> difficult movie from a difficult director. That's I mean that I, I really enjoyed the challenge of this movie. I think that it's been a while since I watched a movie and took such detailed notes not that i don't ever not that i don't prepare for the podcast but i usually rely a lot on my ability to just kind of say things off the cuff and from the first 10 minutes of this movie i knew that th that was not going to be the case and that i was going to have to come like really prepared with my shit written down and i'm always grateful for a movie that challenges me in that way because I think that we all suffer from a multitude of distractions all the time right now and I even if the movie is hard it's good to have something to just focus on for two hours see I was gonna I, I did that already because uh, just out of respect for Landon you know it's giving us some of his time so like I mean I'm glad you got there eventually but I just <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> called out i'm sorry I was, gonna say, I was gonna listen to this podcast anyway edit them all you know what i mean <laughs> like, it was gonna happen 
<laughs> um, okay. Well, then let's transition into our next movie, which is The Piano Teacher. Je ferai parvenir mes instructions. Par écrit. C'est totalement malsain ce que tu fais là. Pourquoi est-ce que tu fais des choses pareilles Piano Teacher, directed by Michael Haneke, is a 2000 French film starring Isabelle Huppert, Annie Giraudot, and Benoit Magimel. Um, and the summary of that film is, Erica Cui is a middle-aged piano teacher at a music conservatory in Vienna, living with her elderly but domineering mother. Her late father was a long-standing resident in a mental asylum. Despite a cool facade, Erica is a woman fascinated with voyeurism, sadomasochism, and self-mutilation. At a home recital... At a home recital hosted by friends, Erica meets Walter Klemperer, a young engineer with a passion for classical music. He expresses great admiration for her, and they share a love of the composer Schubert and Schumann. He goes on to apply to her conservatory to be her student so that he can become closer to her. Though his audition is visibly moving to Erica and he garners praise from the other professors, she ultimately votes against his admittance. Despite this, he secures a place as her pupil. Though Walter comes on to Erica very strongly, she rebuffs him until she sees him interacting with another student of hers, Anna, a young girl pressured by her mother and dealing with anxiety. Erica sneaks away during a rehearsal to break a glass and puts the pieces in Anna's coat, causing her to injure her hand and prevent her from performing at an upcoming concert. After this incident occurs, Walter follows Erica to a bathroom and the two kiss passionately. She repeatedly frustrates and humiliates him, finally giving him a hand job and a blowjob. When he will not comply with her rules, she stops, telling him that she will send him a letter with her sexual desires outlined in detail. Later, she feigns sympathy to Anna's mother, telling her that, she can on that only she can replace Anna in the concert. Meanwhile... Walter is increasingly frank about his sexual desires for Erica. One night at her home, she finally shares her letter with him, which he finds disgusting, and ends up leaving. That night, as Erica's mother berates her for bringing a man home, she attacks her mother, kissing her and frantically shouting that he, she loves her. Her mother tells her that she has lost her mind and tells her to go to bed. The next day, Erica attempts to apologize and console Walter at his hockey rink, but vomits when trying to give him another blowjob and leaves him alone. Walter arrives at Erica's apartment later that evening and attacks her as she described in the letter, but it is not as she imagined. After locking her mother away, he beats and rapes her, blaming her for causing him so much frustration. The next day, Erica brings a kitchen knife with her to the piano concert. When she sees Walter and he offers a passing hello, she waits for everyone to enter the concert hall and stabs herself in the shoulder before running off into the night. Again, just a whole freight train of a plot. <laughs> so I love, I love hearing all of these things set like it's the back like it's the back of a book or something <laughs> like all well, in a row I, I wrote the description out because i knew that trying to do either of these movies off the cuff was just going to be a total disaster so oh yeah it would it be kind a of is like yeah. me reading them off the back of a book but we wrote um, the back of the book so it's you know yes that 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 you did <laughs> so and and to anybody listening who has not seen this movie and is just kind of listening for fun uh, both of these descriptions are really like Again, it's a lot to go into in a couple of paragraphs and just describing all of these things wrote like this really does not convey the everything, especially for this film, which is just teeming with silent, 
emoting and repression just really sits in the repression so yeah and that was kind of the reason i picked these two movies um besides being very tense very uncomfortable like sexually driven sort of dramas i think um sexual repression ties into both of these movies a lot something i didn't tie it i didn't say at the beginning that i i mentioned in our pre-conversation was that i think fat girl kind of takes a look at sexual repression pre-adulthood based on one's own qualities and self-perception and how everything kind of ties together with what you're given almost like with whether that's appearance or personality and how that kind of develops and um and that all sort of happens pre-adulthood where the piano teacher this is all happening almost post-adulthood because um uh isabel huppert um what is i'm sorry erica scroll up Erica, thank you. Um, Erica um, is almost the end of being an adult, you could say, because, yeah, I think Isabel Huppert would have been 45, so kind of getting to that cusp between um, the end of adulthood and the beginning of being um, almost being like a senior almost, and um, kind of living her life under her mother's thumb and having having no sort of self-autonomy or control over her own life. And because of that, like, I think she kind of feels like she's missed out in a lot of ways um, because of that. And it all has kind of manifested into these, like, um, these un- sometimes unhealthy, like, sexual behaviors, like, um, like you mentioned, like, the self-mutilation, which we do see s- scenes of that in the movie. A lot of these, like, sadomasochistic fe- fetishes, like, um, how she... Um, like sort of enjoys like being like sort of switching between like um, like giving pain as well as like receiving like uh, like pain as well just for like the like excitement of it and uh, yeah I think that's what makes this film work so well is that all of these pieces kind of tie into one another and gives the audience this very clear perception of um, who Erica was and who she became because of that and another thing too this movie is based on a book um I didn't write down the author, um, but something that was not uh, done in the movie very much was, um, that is talked about in the book apparently, is that it shows a lot of Erica's childhood. And it kind of, from what I understand, kind of goes back and forth and paints a bigger picture where um, um, Mikhail Hanukkah didn't really want to do that because um, he wanted the kind of narrative to speak for itself and just kind of go from one end to the other without stopping basically where it's just like one set path he himself said he thinks explanation like dulls film Mm -hmm. well and i think that um it's honestly it's not needed that's i think fat that can easily be trimmed because Mm -hmm. you understand from just a couple of quick well-written sentences like just the first time you see her with your mother or with her mother, you understand, oh, this is a crazy situation. She literally has a line where she's like, by the way, my dad was in a mental asylum. LOL, gotta go, bye. Yeah, I caught, I, <laughs> I lost that the first time I watched this movie entirely. And I had to look, I didn't catch that until like the second time I watched this movie, like, and was reading some of the Wikipedia stuff. So that was something that, yeah, I know was kind of, wasn't really mm-hmm. mentioned explicitly that I just, I didn't catch the first time. Yeah, just a great look at how, uh, generational trauma can continue yeah. to impact you throughout your entire life um what i think the most interesting thing about this movie for me is that erica walks a fine line of being both a victim and an aggressor and i think that that is a really interesting portrait of um again a survivor of this clear 
parental abuse that she has suffered from her mother. Um, one thing that I was definitely thinking throughout was that I really feel like Black Swan took a lot of inspiration from this movie. Um, I thought that like throughout the whole entire movie too. I'm not, the, I'm glad I'm not the only one that felt that way. Yeah. Well, especially with the way that it ends. Um, I just, it was really strange and I haven't seen Black Swan in a long time. And I think I liked Black Swan a little bit more with the places that it goes with that kind of mother daughter dynamic. But I don't know, overall, like the things that I, that I take from this movie is that like, this is a woman who, again, kind of that same issue that I talked about with fat girl of porn culture kind of presenting this image of sex and these versions of sex that are not necessarily true to life and creating, you know, a lot of these violent trends or fad. And like there, I I don't have the exact statistic on hand, but there are straight up statistics about how watching porn warps your brain and warps how you view yourself and your own sexuality, especially when it comes to men and violence. And especially when it comes to women and, um, their own, you know, pleasure. And watching this movie, she is so tightly wound every second that she's on screen. At first, I thought that maybe I was waiting for her to snap and that was the enthralling part of it. But then I kind of realized that the thrilling part of this movie is how she just exists like that. Like there is really no snap coming throughout the entire movie. And I think that she says it herself when she says that she is never going to let her feelings trump her intelligence. And I think that that is the way that she loses in the end of the film is that that is finally what happens is that her feelings win out whether she wants them to or not. It's more of a, not so much that she snaps, but she gives, she finally like, like, um, like, like lets it down a bit, like the opposite of snap or whatever. She like lets the wall down a bit and is like, rejected reviled and punished for it and there's mm-hmm. kind of no coming back from that for her in the yeah. in, in the narrative of this film at least yeah and it's and, and this is to say i i'm not trying to like kink shame anybody who's into bdsm or who oh sure whatever but it is very clear that this is not coming from a place of being legitimately interested in a subculture. It is very much an issue that she needs to go to fucking therapy for. <laughs> like you should yeah. not be doing <laughs> things if you have not fully like talked it out with your partner. At the very least, and, like, you should get permission before spying on people having sex at your local drive-in theater. And then peeing on their carts. Really yeah. rude. And she's well within six feet. So it's just not safe either. There was, you know, what's funny about that is there was literally when they were all heading out of the the concession area of the theater to go to their cars, I had a moment where I was like, wow, they're all just like touching each other, like shoulder to shoulder. Like it's getting to the point of the world where I'm starting to feel weird about seeing that in movies now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, remember when we used to do that and it was remember, just normal? What the hell? Yeah. Touching. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so th- a thing that I, I definitely want to talk about is the character of Walter overall, because I think that Hanukkah does a- a- an interesting job of trying to take a character, which he admitted in the book is very much singularly an asshole. And in the movie, I think ultimately he is clearly because he beats her and rapes her. But I think that he has a valid point when he says that um, 
it's about love versus cowardice, especially when she is, you know, choosing this idealized violent fantasy over somebody who is willing to be with her and love her. And I think that that is where the issue comes in with, you know, her, her sexual proclivities is that she's closing herself off to any chance at a healthy or normal relationship. And, and so in fact that the, the attempt that she makes to go to him when she goes to the hockey rink and is like, I'm sorry, I totally fucked up. I shouldn't have showed you that. Like, I love you. We can totally make this work. Like when she tries to be with him sexually from that place of a quote unquote love. I'm not going to call it love because they've known each other for like three weeks, but um, it, it physically makes her ill. She cannot do it. She cannot grasp like how to interact with somebody on a real human level. Like it has to be through this lens of violence or through a filter of music or writing or art or something. Like it can't just be human to human connection. And that's what makes her throw up, right? That's the end at the hockey rink. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. He obviously is a bad person. And also there's a point to be made about don't become obsessed with somebody who's pretty much a stranger and then get mad when they're not like the idealized version of them that you wanted them to be. But I do feel like maybe you can usually successfully head into a relationship without getting like a 74 page letter. Although when he's reading that and explaining it to her, like trying to get her to comment on it, the only thing I could think of was that tweet, which I have paraphrased as my explicit BDSM demands letter seems to be raising a lot of questions already answered by my letter. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right there. Oh my god! It's, it, it is literally all right there. <laughs> I mean, the details of what what's going to happen. She's got it all planned out. I mean, she's she's got the details down, which is you know respectable. Yeah, well, and I do think that it's it's really telling that when he at like when she is in control of the pain or the the hurting herself, she is fine with it. But I think it's really telling that the minute he actually hits her and the minute that he's like, okay, fine, we're going to do it how you wanted it. She completely is like, no, this is not what I wanted at all. Like, I think that the, the main takeaway is that overall Erica values control and she has all of these things put up on a pedestal like when she experiences real love it will be real and when somebody can perfectly explain Schubert and can play it without any like deviation from her ideal of how it should be played then that will be her worthy partner um the difference between fantasy and reality is just too much for her in every scenario like she is wildly jealous when Walter barely interacts with Anna who I have to assume he is just meeting in that moment to the point where she possibly ruins this girl's life by injuring her hands forever. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it, and it's based on this imagined slight, you know, she just cannot handle being in the real world and real world interactions and emotions. And she is so separate and so stunted. It's just, it's, it's, it's tragic. And, when she is in bed with her mother and is being berated basically for bringing a man home, which is a very normal thing for a middle-aged woman to do, by the way. Oh, naturally. I'm yeah. sure we all know this, but okay, just but in case anybody the neighbors was, think, you know, what will they think? Will and they that's think? The most hilarious thing is thinking that anybody in a French apartment complex gives a fuck. Like we never find I was going to say that was something that, that admittedly made me laugh really hard. Yeah. 
She's like, I guess you can just open up a brothel. You brought home one single human. God, mm-hmm. you I mean, mom was concerned about the finances. So like, that seems like a viable way to supplement her income. <laughs> right. We'll just, uh, we'll get some belle du jour in here for the day. But I think that it's really telling that the, even with the person that she is ostensibly closest to in the world, the only way that she knows how to express the complicated feelings that she is feeling. And I get it. Like when you are raised with somebody who is abusive or who is manipulative of you, you do love them, but it's a much more complicated version of love. It's not just a straight up, like we are family and we love each other. It becomes this really sick and twisted thing inside of you that you have to work really hard to untangle. And obviously Erica is not doing that. Like the only way she can even conceive to express the love that she feels for her mother is this wildly inappropriate assault on her where she is like kissing her and holding her down in the bed and just screaming. And her mother doesn't know how to process her emotions either. And it's just these two weird women living together, having these strange, sad lives. And I, throughout the movie, I, I, I was, I feel like I rode this movie in waves, I guess. I was alternately thrilled. Like anytime there was a piano playing scene happening, I was like, okay, I get it. Like I get being horny for the piano. Like we've all been there. <laughs> and then like something totally crazy or inappropriate would happen. And I'd be like, mm, you lost me there, chief. Like I was starting to get kind of horny for your piano teacher thing. And now it's not working anymore. I mean, they're, they're, they call it tickling the ivories for a reason, you know? I, I know. But like, you know what I'm saying? That like there, there definitely is like a thrilling element to this film where you're like, okay, I can get on board with you freaky lady. And then it just like nosedives. Like the ending was such a hard turnoff for me that I think that that's why this is not going to stick with me. And I don't think it challenged me quite in the same way that fat girl did, because it really just becomes about pitying this character as opposed to like trying to really understand her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something else that I kind of noticed too was that aside from the piano playing scenes, um, like all of Mikhail Hanukkah's movies, this is the only Mikhail Hanukkah movie I've seen. I, I only read this, but um, yeah, no music at all, which I thought was, um, which I don't know, you don't really realize that how much music kind of ties into playing the audience, not playing, like, I don't know, like sort of coaxing the audience a little bit with emotion until you step into the shoes of a movie that has none aside from the piano I get the piano itself so that was something that I thought was interesting I mean these it's almost like these movies that uh that are kind of explicitly about emo- like different kinds of manipulation like we don't even need music to manipulate our, your emotions like it's what we're doing here although I I I feel like though that I did feel a little bit manipulated by the music because I know that like this kind of relationship is not a thing that is of interest to me in any way, shape or form. But in the scene after they have their first like bathroom confrontation and she's playing the piano and the the camera is focused just down on the keys and you can see her legs crossed next to his. And just the way that it's framed is that his hands are going over the piano and you can almost feel very much that he wants to take his hands off the piano and put them on her. And I think that that combined with the music, knowing that that music is the most like titillating thing for her makes it an incredibly sexy scene only to then be completely ruined by everything else that happens in the rest. (laughs) But, um, 
something that Isabel Huppert said in one of the interviews that I watched after the movie was that Hanukkah is very much a kind of director who searches for the correct frame and then lets the scene unfold from there. Like once he finds what he's looking for, the camera will just sit there. And that was a scene where I was like, okay, I get it. Like I'm on board. And then again, like very much a crusty movie for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't come to this come to this thought until like when we were writing down our notes right before this but like it's these movies pair together interest interestingly to use a meaningless word but like in how that they end the like this one is almost it's obviously not traditional but is maybe a more familiar um just depressing like just a more a more familiar depressing ending where just like oh we like all the as as he says like as Hanukkah himself says development uh is not always for the positive uh it's, it, this is like uh, there's development here it is negative she is unable to take control in any of the different ways that she wants to take control she's unable to like seduce him or murder him or change herself she's just like she can't she can't and, and do any of those things really bring herself to whereas fat girl ends with like i guess this is up to interpretation but almost like a perversely that that movie ends in a perverse way with someone taking control of the terrible mm-hmm. thing that has happened whereas this one is about the complete inability to take control yeah i mean to that point i think that they are a good compare and contrast just for the aspects of it being like a young girl and an older woman and how you can choose to grow or you can choose to stay the same. But I, I don't know for this movie, like it just, it's engrossing. And for the first like hour and a half, I was really like, I I could not take my eyes off the screen and just something about the way that it ends. I think it's that she can't even bring herself to martyr herself if you know like for her feelings she knows that she's lost because her her existence was based on the idea of not wanting to concede her intelligence to her feelings and she knows that she's done that and it would be very byronic to just kill herself and be done with it but like and i feel like that is kind of what she wants to do and having already you know put together this black swan comparison in my head throughout the film i was kind of thinking she would go on stage and then kill herself on stage but nope just a little cut and then runs off to again further avoid the confrontation and to further avoid having to you know try to impress all of these people well that's where again black swan with like you know a really twisted but like twisted kind of triumphant ending whereas this like this one just is resolutely like just mm-hmm. her what for how however twisted the life she had been leading and the con- like the tight control she kept on herself she has lost even that even that like completely fucked control that she had like and now she has discovered like she again like she can't even do that she can't even bring herself to kill herself and she just Mm -hmm. lost all control now i don't even know what happens next it just yeah it ends that's it i mean and that is just sometimes how life is and i think that that is a difference specifically between like a european filmmaker and an american filmmaker is that of course darren aronofsky would be like no we still have to have this weird like quote-unquote happy ending of her at least getting what she wants so that we can feel good about that maybe which I, i'm sure it wasn't really his intent for us to feel good at the end of black swan but hanukkah is can is content to just kind of be like sorry about it and 
end the film on that perfect, still well-framed shot. You don't even have to have watched a Michael Hanukkah movie to like be like, yeah, that makes that that's about what I expected. It's funny, um, take like looking at um Black Swan, like like as that big happy ending, because like when you look at Aronofsky's some of his other movies like Requiem and uh oh geez, what else? Um I had another oh and no uh, and mother, like both of those super end <laughs> Noah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like um like Requiem and and Mother, those end like profoundly unhappily in in a in a huge way. And um or Black Swan, I'm I'm curious what the why the why the direction ended that way compared to some of his other stuff i don't know i i honestly i would have to guess like some like probably just like being tired of being bleak all the time (laughs) this is yeah (laughs) this is more like a trivia fact about piano teacher than any kind of like i just because i haven't seen enough hanukkah to say how this affects it but i do think it's interesting that for hanukkah he says this is even though this like this had like kind of a convoluted production history and he wanted to make it for like, I don't know, a decade or something. And he wrote a script for someone else to make the movie, but then that fell through and he ended up making the movie himself. But it sounds like because he wrote the script for someone else, he views this as like the one time and he only did it because Isabelle Huppert agreed to be in the movie that he made a movie that, every other movie or adaptation like he has written for himself to create like getting a little bit into the outdoor comparison between him and Berlot. uh but this is like the one time he relented and allowed that to happen which again that's kind of more of a trivia thing but that's fascinating and of course like this also like kicked off several like a i don't know at least a deck again ongoing no not ongoing l wasn't him um i don't know what i'm saying there but about a decade of um collaboration between Hanukkah and Huppert. I think they made at least two more movies together. Mm -hmm. Well, and in the interview too, uh, Huppert mentions that um, they had wanted to work together previously and it just hadn't worked out. And he was not going to make this movie if she wouldn't accept the role. Funny Games was too intense for her. So just had to tone it down a bit with the piano teacher. I just, and you know what's, it's a thought that I had when I was just like watching Isabel Huppert just like, lifelessly give this man a hand job while staring directly into his eyes just based on like her entire filmography I was like is this just how she has sex in real life maybe like do you think maybe <laughs> she's just like this and that's, it's not a bit like I don't know we talked about Elizabeth Moss on the last recently watched about how like her role choices were just like oh Liz <laughs> you're incredible what's, uh, what's up <laughs> blink twice if you okay <laughs> but, but uh, I, while we're on Isabel Hubert, I mean, this is like the easiest point to make about the whole movie. But holy shit, what a f- her face. Fa- like right, her face can not move, Amazing. and you're like the emotion. Like you can see how she shifts from one thing to another, and like her, meanwhile, her face is literally not moved. It's, I've it's never unreal. seen. I've never seen a performance like that that conveys so much emotion by keeping the same face throughout the entire thing. Like where like no music. Yeah. No, I was gonna say you can feel like everything that's inside of her with just that look on her face. Like she's well, she looks like she's about to snap at any moment, basically. And she basically does at the end when she stabs herself. No music, no like gentle zoom in or out. No, just just a can't like like as she said about Hanukkah, Hanukkah also said about her. Like you just like he just sets up the camera, she just has her face in front of it, and like this, what a riveting movie. I can go with this for four or five minutes. (laughs) 
um yeah Huppert is one of those people like i think in a lot of films we have a focus on oh they're natural and oh they're so like talented and all this stuff but acting is a job it's a lot of work and a lot of people will be of the opinion that if you can see the work going into it it's maybe not as good but i think that Huppert is a really great example of like that is a person who has dedicated her life to this craft who has studied it who has worked extensively to perfect it and it shows in every second that she's on screen in any movie so much so that the the that our co-star in the movie the guy who played Benoit learned how to play piano, although she did too, and learned how to skate and play hockey. And we're still just like, who pair, man? She, <laughs> she just sat there. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, guys. So any final thoughts, any compares and contrasts that we want to, we want to do, or we're um, wrapping it up. I love both these movies. I prefer Fat Girl a little bit. I think um, I think Fat Girl is a little easier for me to pop in on a whim. Like I've seen this movie four times. I've seen Piano Teacher twice. Um, uh, like I've, if, if I was giving, I know you two don't do scores on here, but I yeah, both of these are eight out of tens for me, and I I really love both of them. I think I do like Fat Girl a little bit more, and um, I guess the boldness of what it's saying a little bit more, and I like how I like the the big extremes that fat girl kind of works itself into a little bit more. And um, as we kind of proved by having such a, like a discussion that was twice as long as piano teacher. So yeah. I give it 10 love to suffers out of 10, you know? Uh, hey, nice. Um, I mean, <laughs> we would uh, let these films in. I, I guess. gotta say, like I've, I've always needed, to... <laughs> I made that joke. What am I sighing for? Um, I guess like, this is just like getting into like, I don't know obvious film bro territory but i also have a joke in there um really like i i enjoy listening to a lot but i've also just i mean this isn't surprising i mean like i love to suffer is my thing i like it made me think of cronenberg in certain ways but um really enjoy listening to hanukkah talk about making movies and getting into like uh about how he it's not pornography it's obscenity and what's actually obscene to him is how violence can just be whatever but whenever it's sex like you know it's a familiar conversation but like and that is all interesting and like really enjoyed this well listening reading his talk you know um and then he said it was the, it was very important to them uh, how they portrayed sexuality so it didn't feel like soft pornography and um just slips in there that like it's sexuality he feels that they so rarely get it right in film and uh, one of the two examples two rare examples that he cites is getting it right as um sallow oh yeah yeah he loves sallow i so know that. he is what? he sure is michael haddocky so <laughs> Um, uh, one more thing I wanted to ask, um, since, um, the other, <laughs> something that kind of started the reputation of me, like recommending these films on this podcast, how did you two like getting through these in comparison to happiness? Ah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, they're so different because these are just have really long, uh, like extended yeah. scenes and sequence shots and like sing and wonders and such. Whereas happiness is a total anthology. And I think that, again, when we talked about happiness, we talked about it. It is a really uncomfortable movie, but it's ultimately born out of a place of empathy. And I don't think that the piano teacher has really any empathy for for its lead. Um, 
Fat Girl is, I think, closer to the experience that I had while watching Happiness, but I don't know that I would compare them outside of just being difficult movies. And that was basically kind of the connection I made between them. Yeah, I yeah. definitely see how, yeah, Happiness definitely feels different than these other two. But um, yeah, I, yeah, no, and, and yeah, Happiness, I like a little bit more than both of these movies as far as like whole experiences, as far as what they're saying. But um, yeah, all three of these movies, I think are great for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and I mean, again, like I said at the top, I, I love a movie that challenges me and I love to turn on that academic part of my brain and really dive into the research, which is something that I, I really had a chance to do with these movies. And so like, I, I mean, I, I'm glad I'm happy to continue to be challenged. Like it's, <laughs> it makes for an interesting <laughs> podcast episode for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't, I was curious how these two would kind of relate to one another. And I think it turned for a, a good discussion and especially with fat girl. Yeah. I, I'd been wanting to have a long extended discussion of Fat Girl specifically, like for a long time, ever since I saw it really. So it was kind of, it was kind of fun to talk about this with people who, I don't know, who take it seriously and really, um, yeah, have, have thoughtful things to say about both of these movies. So thank you both. Yeah, of course. Pat yourself on the back because it's good picks. Our first guest spot. Um, and, and, and by the way, I like movies that aren't terribly uncomfortable, by the way. I just want to, I want to emphasize that <laughs> if I'm ever, if I'm ever, I, this wasn't, and this wasn't a case of like Landon, like, like, like paying for Patreon and then offering general editing help and kindness just so he could make two of his friends. <laughs> we're going to rename totally one of the corners. Yeah. We're going to rename one of the corners of the podcast Landon's suffering corner. It'll be on the opposite <laughs> side of the room from the Chris Evans corner. Uh, yeah. I, I, made, I made the joke that you heard me say, uh, I just, I love, love to suffer movies in the podcast. You're like challenge accepted. Prove it. <laughs> I, I will say here. In Landon's defense, his first appearance on our podcast was Stand By Me, which is ultimately a feel-good movie. So yes, you do have that, that in your in your plus column. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so for sure. You... If I'm ever asked to be a guest again, I swear to God, like because I was almost like gonna recommend like, how about we watch like Fly Away Home and Spellbound, the spelling <laughs> documentary <laughs> or something I like that. I almost watched that the other day. <laughs> oh, really? Oh no. <laughs> that would be yeah. really funny. So yeah, but maybe maybe if I'm ever asked to be back on, we can pick something that's less intense. Well, I mean, for, I love, sadly um, you're banned now, but <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it was a good run. I appreciate I appreciate the thought. I'm gonna just fade out into the background. <laughs> don't worry, I've oh, been man. fired several times, and yet, like, I don't know, I, I don't know if there's like a two year notice or what, but I, I'm still here somehow. It's a, it's really a, a mark of honor to be fired from Let the Right Films In. So you made it. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. I, I love to be part of it. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us um, and making a, a guest feature happen in our Criterion series. Thank you for bringing these wonderfully challenging movies to us. It is much appreciated. Totally. And, and oh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, um, just a heads up to anyone listening. I have a YouTube channel as well that I've um, been working through, like uh, that was kind of spawned out of quarantine that you can just find under my name, Landon DeFever. So if you are interested in hearing 
more thoughts on movies that are not wildly uncomfortable, feel free to look me up on there. And I'm also yes. on Twitter too. So yeah. <laughs> Please do all of those things. And thank you, Landon, for your help producing our podcast of late as Tyler battled 700 recurrences of strep throat and uh, work nightmares. It has really, I think, helped us be on a much better regular release schedule. Um, and that is also much appreciated. And it also, I think, frees us up a little bit to do some of these deep dives and we love mm-hmm. you. <laughs> of course. Aw. Of course. I love, um, I listen to this podcast any week, any, every week anyway. So it just kind of made sense that, Hey, why don't I just ask, <laughs> why don't I just ask to help edit some of these? So yeah. We'll be back next month with insert that here. I'll probably just re-record. Yeah. That that'll be phrase. seamless. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next month with me. She's beautiful. <laughs> um, I will record an actual, like we'll record an actual segment where I will say we'll be back next month and we can just drop that in later. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. And here is that seamless drop. Our next Criterion double feature will be the 1996 film The Watermelon Woman and The Fits from 2015. If you are looking to get in contact with us because this inspired you to want to be a guest on our podcast, you can email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com. You can shout us out on Twitter, which is also at ltrfipod. We have an Instagram, which I have also been posting on kind of recently doing some stories and stuff. So we're trying to be a little bit more active there. You're never going to believe it. The username is also LTRFIPod. And finally, as we've talked about in several episodes by now, your girl is getting married in October and we have stuff we want to buy for the podcast. And if you feel like you've ever wanted to financially support us, now is maybe the time. You can find us on patreon.com slash LTRFIPod. Um, We have donation tiers as low as $1, which will get you a shout out on the show or up to $10, which you can personally choose to bully us by making us suffer through a movie in the way that Landon has. I keep thinking we should You're do welcome. Like postcards or something. Um, I believe $15 gets you a mailed out postcard as well. Seems high. Or something. I mean, we can workshop it. Yeah. If you guys want a postcard, you can probably just mess with For $2, you can suggest, if you, at the $2 a month level, you can suggest uh, other tiers for the Patreon. <laughs> Um, I'm actually going to add that as a tier later. (laughs) Tier two suggests more tiers. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Lynn, for joining us. And absolutely. We will see you guys next time. Um, did we all like my explicit BDSM letter joke? Because I was really tickled with myself when I came up with that earlier. <laughs> I mean, it's no... I laughed. I thought it was funny. I liked it. <laughs> I, just wanted to, I just really wanted to soak in some validation from that. Thank you. Oh, you're good. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, tried to hi- I tried to hype it up. I'm an old and I didn't <laughs> so get the reference. Okay. So there is a tweet uh, that goes around and it says, my not involved in child trafficking shirt uh, is causing a lot of questions that I feel are answered by my shirt. <laughs>
So yeah, that was the joke. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't properly prep you, but now you, you understand that it's the funniest thing ever. So that's good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to just like, I mean, it's nice to just talk about some nice movies about, you know, just like healthy relationships and romance and just, you know, some cute sex stuff. Like, <laughs> it's a nice, oh. it's a nice reprieve from the world. So, thank Tyler, you. Tyler, don't laugh. I'm mad at you. 